Right, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke uh, chapter 22. I'm going to read some, some verses there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty up here on the, on the front. Just come and grab one or open up your little uncover Gospel of Luke. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went into the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus said, uh, Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it for? Uh, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have already desired, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays me. They began to question among themselves, which of them might it be who would do this? Well, good morning, church. We, um, as Nathan has explained, are looking in Luke chapter 22 today. Um, the bulk of Luke chapter 22 deals with the final hours that Jesus spends with his disciples. Uh, before we, we get into it, let's commit ourselves to the Lord. Our Father God, we, we confess that uh, your word is all-powerful and we would ask that your spirit would be at work in each of our hearts to, to direct us to yourself as we, as we unpack your word today. May you be honoured and may you challenge, equip, and grow us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. For those who are searching, may we find true meaning in and through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought you knew God's will in a certain situation, or perhaps felt him calling you to do something, but as you've looked back in hindsight, you've, you've kind of thought to yourself, was that from the Lord or was it more what I wanted to do? 
Have you ever presumed to know the mind of Christ only to find that what you thought you knew wasn't perhaps as clear-cut as you expected it to be? Last week I mentioned um, standing outside that terrace house in Carlton, uh, a real sense of anticipation as I was absolutely certain beyond a shadow of doubt that I was going to find information about uh, my birth mother that would enable me to contact her and uh, tell her about Jesus. I was convinced that the Lord's purposes in never knowing my mother and of uh, having a wonderful Christian couple come and take me out of the orphanage to live with them was so that I would get to hear the gospel message for myself, I would get to embrace it, and as a result of that, I would get to share it with, with my mother. It all made perfect sense. In my mind, that was God's plan. Yet I was to be told a, a different story. Uh, I knocked on that door and they, uh, the two ladies that were there uh, welcomed me in and they said, well, we've found out some information about your mother. And they handed me uh, a file and they explained to me what was in that file. They talked about um, it detailed where my mother was born, some of her background, her um, siblings and uh, the three children that she had after me. The most significant thing that I was told was that, in fact, my mother had passed away many, many years before. And as I sat there in, uh, in kind of stunned silence, I began to do the math. And I realised two years before I'd be, I was a Christian, she was gone. I was never going to get the chance to tell her that Jesus died for her sin. that he loves her, and that what he had done for me, he could do for her. Our God had a different agenda. My God had a different agenda. And I confess, I'm still not quite clear on what that is, but that's all right. God is sovereign. Maybe it's as simple as, as, as learning that it's not all about me. It's not all about my wants trying to fit God's all-encompassing wisdom, foreknowledge and sovereignty into my own timetable. There are two things uh, that are going on in Luke chapter 22 that I'd like to draw your attention to in particular this morning. Jesus, knowing of his imminent departure, is not trying to complete a nice bucket list or some other self-indulgent enterprise. I imagine that if God were to tell me you have this finite time left, I would be thinking about all the stuff that I would like to do. I'd like to do a lot of travelling. Maybe I'd be thinking about that. Maybe I would like to get all my family around and, uh, and, and have a, an enjoyable time with them. Instead, Jesus seeks to prepare the disciples for what is to come. That is the... That is the heart of what Jesus is on about here in Luke chapter 22, wanting to prepare the disciples for what is about to come. The disciples are shown, however, to be in a totally different place. Their heads are in a different space. Hearing yet not understanding. Responding on a level that causes us to look on with amusement. 
How could they not appreciate what Jesus was saying? But a closer look at the chapter as it unfolds confirms that, that we may not be all that different to them. So throughout the passage, this pattern emerges of, of Jesus in his final hours seeking to teach the disciples, to remind them of certain principles and the disciples just not seeming to get it at this time. The first six verses, the wheels are set in motion of Luke chapter 22. And the wheels are set in motion through the religious leaders, we're told. The time for talking was over. They no longer sought to trap Jesus through moral, spiritual or legal arguments in order to try and undermine his position in front of the people. Because what happened when they tried to do that? It was he who turned their questions upon themselves and exposed them for the hypocritical charlatans that they were. The conduit of how they were going to accomplish this was Judas. It was he who went to the chief priests with the offer to give them the right time and the right place to arrest Jesus without the crowds disrupting what they wanted to do. Now the heart of Judas is exposed. Though appearing to be a disciple, he was in fact a wolf in sheep's clothing. A thief who, while looking after the money, was skimming off the top. Now, I don't believe this was Judas's intent from the start, but the subtlety of sin is so very powerful and so often leads us down a path that we walk in more and more sin as we go. It's a little bit like a lie. You tell a little lie, and before you know it, there's another one got to be told to hide that, and before you know it, it's a, it's a big thing. And you wonder how you're going to get out of it. That's what sin does. It feeds upon itself. And before long, we can find ourselves in such a mire, we allow the enemy to be our guide. So while the enemy plots behind the scenes, the pattern of Jesus preparing the disciples for what is to come and the disciples' apparent lack of awareness begins. From verse 7 down to 23, Jesus prepares the disciples by revealing, by explaining to them the new covenant. As we observed last week, it is impossible to read through these chapters in Luke and, not, and ignore the fact that Jesus is in control. The events as they unfold do not take him by surprise. He's in no way playing catch-up, trying to adapt to circumstances as they unfold in front of him. In full knowledge of what is to come, there is a room prepared. Now, whether he had planned for the room's preparation with the man beforehand or by divine mandate, knew where and how it would be ready, Jesus provides the setting for the upper room discourse. From verse 14, we see that the disciples are instructed about what Jesus describes as the new covenant. And he uses the Passover meal where the Jewish household is reminded afresh of the miraculous rescue that they, that they received from the hands of slavery in Egypt. And this Passover was a week-long celebration that included the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover meal itself was a significant, drawn-out affair. 
where the head of the household led the household in commemorating what had taken place. It included bitter, bitter herbs, vegetables, unleavened bread, roasted lamb, and there were four cups of wine. One called the cup of redemption. And each of these symbolised an important opportunity for, this, for the Jewish family that were present to commemorate, to remember what God had done for them in Egypt, in setting them free. We, we know the celebration, we know it as a celebration that uses bread and wine to signify God's saving and continuing provision of the people. That time when the blood of the lamb was used so the angel of, the death, the angel of death would pass over. And in this setting, Jesus expands on what he had previously told them about his death. Three times previously in Luke, he'd explained that he was going to die. He explains that his body and blood would bring a new promise, a covenant between God and man, not dependent on our worth, not dependent on our obedience or an adherence to a certain standard that we could not hope to keep but one that is by faith. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 2, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. A little further on in the same chapter, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now as the stewards get ready to to hand out the the bread and the cup to us this morning. We're going to stop now and share in communion together. We as a church community remember this cornerstone of our faith as we share in the emblems together. Remembering that that his body and blood sets us free from the burden, the penalty and the guilt of being a slave to sin. Our future is assured. We rest in the hope that is in Christ Jesus. As we share in uh, communion together, the bread is going to be passed around, as is our custom, we will eat the bread. As the cup comes along, we'll hold on to the cup and drink it together in remembrance of our Lord. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in his blood. Let's drink it and remember him afresh this morning. Uh, There are baskets at the end of each row that will get passed along to collect, collect the cup. Just while that is happening, I'm going to read the rest of our passage this morning. Um, I'm going to go back and read from uh, verse 21, and we're going to go right through to verse 62. It's a bit of a chunk. Let's see how we go. Luke chapter 22 from verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And, as he, and, as, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to both prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place... He said to them, pray that you may not enter in temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and kissed to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw him, saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers in the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, 
I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly you know you also was with this man, for you too are a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster grows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, as we have just, just uh, celebrated, remembered communion together, as Jesus closes in his instruction on, on the new covenant, he talks of his imminent betrayal. And despite all that had just been revealed to them, that was what was on the disciples' minds. They were immediately led to wonder who would be the one to betray him. Their focus, instead of being where Jesus directs him, is on wondering and trying to find out who might be the one. The meat of what Jesus had taught them was completely missed at this point. The meat that where Jesus explained that the bread and wine not only points to an, an historical event that we know took place at Calvary, but it's an ever-present reality in all of our lives. It continues to transform people's lives, the message of the cross. And as a result, we have a hope for the future that cannot be shaken. But instead, their focus was on, on the peripheral. And really, if they had given it some thought, they would realise that if their master knew he was about to be betrayed, it stands to reason he would probably know who it was that was going to betray him. And the disciples' response reflects our own state at times, focusing on the peripheral and not the meat getting hung up on perhaps we're reading a book or, or we're listening to a message from someone at some point and we get hung up on perhaps an anecdote or an illustration or perhaps something that we read or hear uh, we're not comfortable with or we don't agree with. Perhaps the person that we're reading or listening to um, we just don't connect with or... Uh, we don't get on as well as other people and that can affect how much we're able to listen, to hear what God might want to teach us. I mean, on, on the other hand, sometimes focusing on the peripheral means just following a leader because he's popular or he's charismatic or he's a gifted orator without really taking note of, of what they're talking about of the meat that he, that he uh, is trying to teach. From verses 24 to 34, Jesus goes on to prepare the disciples through their weakness. First of all, he confronts them with their pride. As the questions are flying around about who of them it might be that would betray Jesus, the discussion turns, we read there in verse 20, 25, and uh, 24 and 25, to one of their favourite um, discussions. We've heard it before. Who among them was the greatest? 
And you can kind of picture the dialogue. I mean, um, there they are there, wondering who's going to betray. Well, Bartholomew, you're pretty quiet. You sit in the background. We don't know much about you. Maybe you're the one that's um, scheming in the background. Someone else might say, well, come on, Peter, you're the one with the big mouth. You're the one who's always up front. Maybe you want the position that Jesus has. And our dispute arises and it turns into, well, who is the most important of us? Why is, why is this such an issue for the disciples? Well, it's a particularly human characteristic, is it not? Don't we all long to be liked? We would all love to think that people respect us. We would all like to think that uh, we're popular and that um, what we do or say, people will respond positively to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that that focusing on the importance of self is of the flesh. Peter himself says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, the problem of them being in this leadership role, and indeed any leadership role, is not the fact that they are in a leadership role, but the motivation behind it. So as Jesus says, in effect, in verse 27 there, who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And look what Jesus said, but I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. If anyone deserved to be served, it was Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, who holds things in his hands. Yet he came to serve. Church, uh, friends, if you desire to have a leadership role, an attitude of service needs to be integral to it. Well, we don't know for sure, but, but I guess with his track record, we can guess that Peter was a key player in this debate over who was the greatest. And now Jesus singles Peter out. And he describes a scene that is reminiscent of Satan's desire to, to test another of God's people in the Old Testament, that of Job. You know, Satan comes to, to God and he says, the only reason Job is the man he is is because you just bless him. Satan says, if you give him to me for a while, I'll show you the real man. And here in verse 31, we're told that Satan demanded to have him, that he might sift him like wheat. And here the second weakness that uh, Jesus wants to point out to prepare the disciples about was one of self-sufficiency. Jesus says, Simon, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. He wants to test you. He wants to have you. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's not going to happen to me. I will stand firm. Now, lest we're too harsh, the other Gospels record that the rest of of the group were saying the same thing. It won't be me and it won't be me. It's not going to be us. Church, we should never consider ourselves to be beyond failure. 
as if our faith is somehow stronger than everyone else's. Or while others may wilt, we certainly won't. For while it is true that that faith has stood the most severe of trials and tribulations throughout the history of Christendom, a belief in one's own abilities, apart from the one who by grace sustains us all, will ultimately lead to failure. Trust, faith in self will eventually be found out for what it is. Our hope, our strength, our dependence lies in and through the relationship we have with our Saviour. Well, Jesus goes on in verses 35 to 38 and he wants to prepare the disciples through warning them. Whereas when they were sent out earlier, uh, they were sent out two by two in their ministry, Uh, Jesus sent them out in pairs and they were to receive support from those that they had gone to preach to, lodging and food. That mood would soon change. As their Lord would be rejected, they could expect the same treatment. John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world, world hates you, if you're rejected, if people don't want to listen to your message, if they hate you, understand this, says Jesus. They hated me first. They rejected me first. Their response in verse 38, we have, we have two swords, Lord. Again points to a lack of perception. We know that Jesus did not mean the words to be taken literally because he's going to soon rebuke them for the use of the sword. Nowhere else is the use of physical force encouraged in the early church. Instead, we understand our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is in the spiritual realm. We do not change people's life direction. We do not change people's hearts by force at the point of a sword, by pointing a gun at them. We know that God transforms the hearts and minds of people from the inside out. Rather, Jesus is seeking to warn them to be aware, to be prepared for rejection, scorn and even hatred as they go out and preach and that they should always be looking to the one who judges justly for the guidance and comfort they need just at the end there in verse 30 38 they say we've got two swords and then Jesus just briefly said it's enough and it appears to me to be a recognition on Jesus's part that he had gone as far as he was going to do on the subject because they were soon to learn a practical lesson on this matter and then we get to the scene in the, in the garden, verses 39 to 53, where Jesus seeks to prepare the disciples through a word on prayer. Here is Jesus in the garden, pours out his heart to the Father to the point where, where we are told he's in agony, all while still being submissive to God's will he is still able to help prepare his followers through instruction on prayer. He says, pray that you do not fall into temptation. And it's as if 
what Jesus is going through is a reflection of what he's trying to warn the disciples about. Jesus began his ministry, we recall, and Satan came to tempt him. You don't have to go through what you're, the road you're about to walk. Satan said, you bow down to me and I'll take it all away and I'll give you whatever you want. Here again, there is a spiritual battle going on between Jesus and the temptations of the evil one. Was there a shortcut he could take or would he be prepared to, to follow after the Father's will? The temptation to take a shortcut. That's what he's warning the disciples about. He says, men, stay alert. Don't fall into the lure of the easy path of that wide road. Pray that you'll be aware of the subtleties of the enemy, of the weakness of your own flesh, and of the tendency of your own wayward heart. Their inability to grasp or fulfill Jesus' imperative to pray is again a subject we're all too familiar with. We need a relationship with Jesus Christ that is constantly in a state of growth. A relationship that is acutely aware of our own shortcomings and of our own need of wisdom beyond our own abilities. We acknowledge an enemy who longs to compromise our testimony. Being too busy, tired or stressed ought to raise a red flag in our minds. Not to let our guard down, but even to be more diligent in heeding Jesus' warning here. Because it's at those low times in our own life that the enemy seeks to gain a foothold. There ought to be a red flag. We ought to be praying that God will sustain us. Well, we go on to read in verses 57 to 53 about the eventual arrest of Jesus. And as we read in the, in the parallel gospel accounts, we get this total picture of Jesus in control of this situation too. He's confronted by his accusers. And in the midst of all of this, John's Gospel records that he sees to it that the disciples are allowed to go. All those around fall to the ground in awe of his, of his authority, of his presence. He says, those that are here, they're free to go. Jesus helps them to, to see that our goal is fulfilling God's will, not ours. Oh, sorry, I've jumped ahead a little bit. <laughs> um, he, confronts, he confronts his accusers. He reveals something of his div divine power and he willingly goes with those whose hatred would turn back, turn the bulk of the city against him. That's what's happening in the garden. He willingly submits to the Father's will. He goes with them willingly.
And as we, as we look at this passage, we see Jesus preparing them through the example of his own submission, submission to God's will, not pushing his own barrow, submitting to the will of the Father. Sometimes push, not pushing our own barrow is a challenge. The disciples wish to take matters into their own hands. They take up the sword. And here Jesus helps them to see that our goal is fulfilling God's will, not our own. Sometimes that means that what we want gets left behind in the process. Well, finally, in verses 54 to 62, we see the fulfilment of Jesus' warning to Peter earlier in chapter 22. Peter follows, we read at a distance, as Jesus is brought to the house of the high priest. And he's asked three times about his relationship with his master. Now, I'm not going to focus on Peter's uh, failure at this point. Um, After all, at least he was there. And I can only begin to imagine what must have been going through his mind as he sees his master, who he had spent so much time with over the previous three years, in a predicament, and Peter well knew what was about to transpire. I've always been fascinated by the look that Jesus gives Peter. I don't know whether you've ever read that and wondered. Whether through a window or an open door, just as the rooster crows, Jesus turns and he makes eye contact with Peter. There's some sort of form of silent communication taking place. Suddenly, Peter remembers. Suddenly, Peter realises what he's done. His heart is aching over his own failure. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, well, there's Jesus. He's, he's looked at Peter and he's, he's um, made the point. See, I'm right. You were wrong, Peter. That's what I used to think. Yet I don't believe that was the case. I don't believe that look was one that said, I knew this was going to happen. I told you so, Peter. Peter, what a disappointment you are to me. Or Peter, if only you had more spine, if only you had the courage to stand up for me, Why? Why don't I think that? Because if that were so, surely none of us could bear it. If that is the response of Jesus to our own failure, I would have been crushed long ago. Instead, I believe the look was one of compassion. One that said, Peter, I understand. I forgive you. Peter, I believe in you. Peter, I I don't believe that the time I've invested you has been wasted. Don't forget, I've prayed for you. That's what Jesus had said. You're going to deny me, but I have prayed that your faith will remain true. Yes, Peter left weeping, 
but he also had the opportunity to remember the rest of Jesus' words. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. The result in Peter was, as we know, profound. As both he and the other ten came to understand the things that Jesus had taught them, applying it to their own hearts and minds and teaching it to those that they came into contact with. Well, as we, as we conclude today, I wonder, do, are you like me and at times you think that you have all the answers only to find that maybe God's plan may not have been what we thought it would be? See, the point is that sometimes we have an agenda all our own. On occasion, we confuse our own wants and desires with God's. From time to time, we presume to have the mind of God on a matter when it's really more about accomplishing our own aspirations, our own desires. I want what I want, and if I can convince myself and others, it's of God all the better. Like the disciples, God is wishing to teach us, but where are our heads at? Are we there listening? Don't allow those peripheral issues to become such that you're missing the things the Lord wants to teach you and grow you through. Is God, does God want you to stop, to listen and learn, but you're too involved in other stuff? You're not hearing the message. Friends, if you're in a leadership role, whether it's in church life, whether it's in your own home, and even in your secular job. One of the things that I have experienced in my own workplace is the impact of servant leadership. We live in a society today where we get young people at work and they come in and it's, they're so confident and so self-assured and they kind of think that from the day they start they should be earning top dollar and, and uh, they've, they've got everything organised. When I started work, if your boss told you to jump, I sort of said, how high? Nowadays, you ask young people to do stuff and their first response is, well, why? Or can't I do it my way? It's a tremendous impact in the workplace, in your relationship with people, to lead by example, to be a servant, that others will see that you are willing, able and prepared to be in the trenches with them. The busier your life is, the more stress you are under, the more fatigued you are, should be a call to draw close to the Lord, to pray, to commune with the one who is able to help us through all that we are struggling with and not to try and find strength in and of ourselves. Finally, Jesus willingly went to the cross, taking the punishment for sin that we had no way to put right ourselves, giving in return a gift that is beyond compare. And he look, as he looks down upon you today, he wants you to know it's not too late. Like Peter you are not beyond the reach of his grace. 
Whatever you've done, whatever you find yourself in, it's not beyond the reach of our Saviour. He forgives you. He knows you're not capable of helping yourself and he provides the means to do that. Let's uh, close in prayer now. Oh, Father God, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the, the mighty saviour that we have, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he willingly came to the cross of Calvary for our sakes because we would have no hope to, to uh, approach your throne without his sacrifice. Oh, Lord God, would you give us teachable hearts, enable us to always be in tune with what you want us to, to learn. May pride and self-sufficiency not be the ruler of our hearts. May we seek to serve you in all we do as, as a servant, firstly of you and secondly of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.